Gentle Readings by Angela Trimber. Today is The Home Garden Magazine, August 1950 issue. The Home Garden, planned and written for the amateur gardeners of America and devoted entirely to their interests. Walter E. Thwing, Publisher. F. F. Rockwell, Editor-in-Chief. Ralph Bailey, Executive Editor. Robert S. Lemon, Managing Editor. Marjorie Allen and Marjorie P. Johnson, Assistant Editors. Page 5. Let's Use Reason. A Letter from the Editor-in-Chief, F. F. Rockwell. At the moment, a surprising number of persons seems to believe that if they do not use any chemical fertilizers on the vegetables, fruits, and flowers they grow, no insect pests or diseases will attack them. The fact that wild cherry, wild apple, gray birch, and native eucalyptus growing in areas where they have never been subjected to so much as a whiff of chemical fertilizer are constantly infested with tent caterpillar, leaf miner, scale, and other pests and diseases means nothing to these enthusiastic believers. I hold no brief for either chemical fertilizers or chemical sprays. Personally, however, I have been able to grow better crops and better flowers with them, using reasonable care and precautions. I am still perfectly willing to be convinced but the convincing will have to be done by facts, not words. Let's use reason and demand evidence before we accept the claims of either the makers of numerical cures for plant pests or the claims of those who say we can do better with no incesticides at all. Signed, F.F. F. Rockwell. Page 6. Make Nature Your Guide in Rock Garden Planning The first of a series setting forth those principles whose observance can make rock gardening an enriching hobby by Robert S. Lemon The aesthetic side of rock gardening, to use a somewhat indefinite term, has been a bone of contention for many years between those who feel that rocks have no place in any garden and the numerous others who claim that stones came before plants and therefore deserve first consideration. Viewed impartially, both sides are partly right and partly wrong, which perhaps is only another way of saying that the visual success of a rock garden depends very largely upon the rocks that are chosen to go into it and how they are used. I'd even go so far as to say that good judgment in these matters can lead to a pleasing final success as surely as unsound thinking will produce a thoroughly unsatisfactory result nine times out of ten. To start at the beginning, remember that a rock garden should be able to grow plants well and look sane, settled, and above all, natural, if it is to prove truly pleasing in appearance. Nature herself demonstrates this latter principle countless times, 
as you will realize if you think back over the rocky scenes you have met and recall how the attractive ones featured ledges, big outcrops, and other basic formations, while the mere jumbles looked almost distasteful because of their confusion and restless air of disturbance. Ledges emphasize horizontal lines. In many areas, you will find that the predominating basic rocks are distinctly stratified in this way, sometimes with a downward pitch, but always at a uniform angle. Such stone can be used handsomely if you retain its layer-like character. For best results, leave substantial rock areas with little planting to emphasize the lines. Page 31. Report of the month from the home garden front. My garden in the shade. First award goes to Mrs. H.D. Eifert in Springfield, Illinois. We have a shady garden because we can't help it. Two large American elms belonging to neighbors on either side of us effectively lay a canopy of shade over a large part of our backyard. At first, the garden, as we planned it, became a graveyard of sun-loving plants. Then we looked to the overshadowing treetops and acquired the habit of browsing through catalogs in search of that simple phrase, likes shade. The result, after eight years, is still not at all what we would want, but it is far better than if it ever was on these shadowed square yards of property approximately 40 by 50 feet in area. The soil is not good. We have had neither time nor energy to remake it. We planted a honeysuckle on the fence in back of this bed, which is directly under the larger elm. This means that the old elm leaves must be removed by hand. Each spring, a mulch of spruce needles gathered by the bushel from a nearby park, must be scattered over it with a dressing of aluminum sulfate. The summer may be hot and dry, but in the shade it is at least more comfortable than out in the full sunshine. There are few flowers, but if we have become fond of the neat mosaic of leaf patterns all summer long, the violet leaves which form a low substracta to cover otherwise bare ground, the full, broad, cool leaves of various funkias, the fountains of ferns, the neat low plants of foam flower, laurel, the azaleas, the junipers, the white pine, the dogwood, the two birches, the yew, the small hemlocks. The mosaic is green and beautiful and peaceful, on a hot day in midsummer. There is still some bloom. The honeysuckle blossoms most of the summer. Lemon yellow Hyperion day lilies grow tall. Funkias open tubular, fragrant white flowers in late afternoon to perfume the garden. Purple and lavender funkias bloom. Regal lilies, even in their shade, do rather well though their stems are weaker than those out in the sunshine. Tall blue bellflowers, brought from the woods and allowed to seed themselves, 
blossom in spires of lavender bloom. Pink phlox does well in the shade. Then, as shade decreases with the coming of autumn, the buds on the witch hazel bushes expand, and in October and November they bloom in a host of frazzled-out, lemon-scented, thin yellow flowers. It is a garden in the shade. It has little of the bloom of sunny gardens in summer, but the spring performance is rewarding. The summer leafage is cool and green, and the pale flowers of shady places are doubly precious because they are so few. Page 40. Replan now and gain a season. By F.F. Rockwell. When you enter a garden, your own or any other, you see it from two points of view. The first is the overall impression. This takes in the general design, dominating features such as large trees and architectural elements, and the principle of scale and proportion. Then, consciously or unconsciously, follows the closer scrutiny of detail. You notice whether the plants that have been used to fill in the detail of the general plan have been well chosen for the particular places which they occupy. Are they in scale with their immediate surroundings? Does the plant form, habit of growth, and the foliage texture harmonize with its surroundings? Do the small groups of plants, which the eye singles out one after another, as one glances around, create a pleasing impression in the way they go together? Or do they strike discordant notes? It is in the answers to these questions that you will find how satisfactory the garden really is. And here, too, lies the opportunity for you most quickly and least expensively to improve it. These little pictures can be created. Often, too, they create themselves. One of the most charming bits of color we had this past spring was unplanned for. Several plants of the lovely blue flax in front of a Harrison's yellow rose. You may be sure that particular combination will not be left to chance in the future. As you go out about your own garden and have the opportunity to visit others, any number of two, three, or even more plants that will create these little flashes may be noted and jotted down for future reference. There is no need to depend upon such standard combinations as Madonna lilies and willow by the pool, effective as these may be. Much of the charm of your own garden, to others as well as to yourself, will lie in it being original and different. Glancing out of the window, I can see our planting of the gorgeous lilies now in their first flowering, but just back of them on a higher level are two bushes of growing soft pink roses, and the combination is enough to set one's teeth on edge. One or the other will certainly be moved by this autumn, and so it goes. Page 45. Longer life to your cut flowers. How to make them last. By Esther C. Grayson. 
What kind of mileage are you getting from your cut flowers? Do they fade and droop too soon? If so, you may not be caring properly for the material after it is cut. For home decoration, it is especially desirable to prepare cut material so that it will last as long as possible. Otherwise, the time and work lavished on arranging the flowers is largely wasted. 1. Cutting The ideal time to cut flowers in hot weather is after sundown. Use a sharp knife, a razor blade knife is best, or flower shears, and cut the stems cleanly at an angle. Carry a bucket with you and place each stem in water as you cut it. The stem tips of poppies, heliotrope, poinsettias, and other flowers, which exude a large, milky substance when cut, should be burned in a flame or plunged in boiling water for one minute or two immediately after cutting. While searing the stem tips, be careful to protect blossoms and foliage from heat or steam. Burning the stems is especially useful with flowers that must be used immediately after cutting, without time for the usual hardening period. Heavy woody stems, like those of shrub roses and branches of flowering shrubs, absorb water better if split or crushed with a hammer for several inches above the base of the stem. 2. Hardening Hardening is the most important step in the process of keeping cut flowers fresh. It simply consists of placing the freshly cut material in large, deep containers of cold water in a dark, cool place for several hours. After this simple treatment, all but the most temperamental blooms and leaves remain crisp and bright for several days if arranged in containers which hold enough water to immerse at least several inches of stem. In a very shallow dish, some flowers, especially those with woody stems, may only last a short time, though others stay fresh for days if properly hardened first. One of the several powders sold by florists to prolong the life of cut flowers may be added to the water in which they are arranged. There is some diversity of opinion as to their value, but since they contain the chief elements vital to plant nutrition, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, the addition of quantity suggested on the package should in fact be helpful. 3. Arranging While constructing arrangements for the home or for exhibition purposes, you will want to be able to lift out flowers and accessory material readily one piece at a time. It helps to have each type of flower or foliage in a separate vessel of water, as nothing is more aggravating than to reach for one flower only to have a half a dozen tumble out with a helter-skelter. As each stem is placed, make sure it is well down in the water where the stem can drink. For emergency cases where short-stemmed flowers must be inserted in a mass arrangement in a large container, Small individual vases can be secured from a florist's supply house. The short-stemmed flowers are inserted in the holder 
which is then filled with water and slipped into place in the arrangement. Page 47, an ad. The subject for November's report is Our Garden Club's Most Popular Program. Don't let the menfolk of the household get stuffy about it. Sure, there are thousands of women's garden club while the men's groups number in the hundreds only, but that means membership in the tens of thousands, as the editors happen to know. In addition, there are scores of clubs which are enjoyed by both men and women. So why shouldn't there be a husband-wife team working for the November Awards, as well as individuals, assuming the teams can agree? Typing your manuscript isn't necessary. Legible handwriting will be quite all right. Send us from 250 to 750 words. And please enclosed stamped self-addressed envelope if you want your report returned. We can't guarantee it, but we'll make every effort to safeguard your contribution. Payments will be made prior to month of publication. At least three special cash awards each month. For the best report, $35. For the next best, $25. And for the third best, $20. These reports due here by August 25th for publication in November. Address, Report Desk, The Home Garden, 444 Madison Avenue, New York 22, New York. Page 64. Designs for Every Day Let Flowers Express Your Festive Mood by Marjorie Allen with arrangements by Natalie Bowen For appreciative folk, every day is festive. Every occasion, however small, calls for imaginative treatment. The homemaker with this genius for daily living makes an ordinary happening a special event by her own attitude towards its importance and by the extras of thought and effort she contributes to make it memorable, to lift it out of the average and into the special. If she has a garden and regularly enjoys cutting and arranging flowers for her home, she uses her art to make family doings festive and when entertaining guests, further to express her hospitality by gracious and distinctive use of flowers. This festive use of flowers is, furthermore, an art whose best expression is spontaneous with an ease that comes through repetition. In its simplest form, it might be just cutting a generous bouquet of favorite garden flowers for the casual caller to take home after a pleasant visit, or having a charming small arrangement on the table about which a group of friends has gathered for a cool drink or for tea. Or making up a simple nosegay for the guest room dresser as a note of special welcome. Or having an informal, quickly done garden arrangement to decorate the supper table when the family decides to eat outdoors on the porch or terrace or in the garden on a hot summer evening. All these are everyday situations 
The flowers, which make quiet contribution to their special enjoyment, are arranged simply yet pleasantly. They are, as ideally home flower designs should be, lovely accessories to a gracious way of life. For mealtime entertaining, the homemaker naturally gives careful attention to her choice of linen, china, and accessories suitable to the occasion. In keeping with these, she will also decide upon a centerpiece of flowers from her garden. She will rightly want it to be appropriate, in kind, and in color to her table furnishings, as well as to contribute to its special way to the particular occasion. Yet, in making an arrangement for company, size adds neither importance nor distinction. It is a case of how, not how many. In the accompanying photographs, we show two examples of distinctive summer table centerpieces. One, a graceful basket arrangement designed especially to suit the informality of outdoor dining on a wooden picnic table. The other suited by design to an indoor table and slightly more elegant in mood, though by virtue of its lightness and the simplicity of its flowers almost equally at home out of doors, perhaps on a glass-topped wrought iron terrace table. The idea of flower favors combined in or linked to a party centerpiece, though very charming, is not new. In the daisy chain table piece shown here, however, the small corsages for the guests come as a real surprise at the end of the meal, for the design so links the corsages that the centerpiece as a whole gives no inkling to the fact that it is actually made up of separate sections. Other favor possibilities might include a larger corsage in the centerpiece for the guest of honor, with small identical corsages for other guests. Nor need flower favors be linked always to the centerpiece, although matching or harmonious flowers should be used for each in the interests of best table appearance. Sometimes individual favors may be at each place. Perhaps for a larger party, they might be miniature arrangements in tiny containers or small baskets to which place cards could be tied with narrow matching ribbon. As an example of other graceful uses to which flower favors might be put in entertaining, we have photographed four tiny arrangements, all different and in different containers, which might be used as conversation-making favors in drawing for partners as an afternoon bridge party. Another possible use of flower favors might be at a shower, at which the gifts could be piled into a large wicker basket, or perhaps into the garden wheelbarrow, if given a decorative treatment with fresh paint or with crepe paper covering, and topped off with flower nosegays to be given to the guests at the outset, after which the guest of honor proceeds with the opening of the gifts. The giving of presents can be made more special when flowers, too, are part of the gift. Sometimes the gift itself can be treated as the arrangement container. 
This is true for the amusing bridge prizes shown just above, which are not wrapped in the customary way, but dressed up with a really lovely arrangement of flowers, as is the ice bucket with tongs that we have photographed, or with just a few flowers added casually after the whimsical manner of those inserted in the coin slot of the flower-painted piggy bank shown here as a booby prize. Other possible gifts that would make good flower containers might include a giant-sized cup and saucer for a morning coffee hound, a daisy demitasse to appeal to the collector of small objects, one of the hamper-like baskets used as a pocketbook for summer, This would need a water-holding container secured inside to keep the flowers fresh. Pitchers, mugs, and vases of all sorts. Household items like metal canisters, nested mixing bowls, large salt shakers, or perhaps a collection of useful items for a gardener or an arranger. Gloves, shears, twist stems, needlepoint holders, rubber kneeling mat, or what have you, assembled attractively and secured in a flat cutting basket containing an arrangement of flowers. Even if the gift that is given, the traditional wrapping of decorative paper and ribbon, takes on an especially festive look with the addition of a few flowers. These may be just two or three lovely blossoms and a bit of foliage tucked casually under the ribbon tie, provided they are hardy kinds and they will not be out of water long. It takes only a few moments more, though, to arrange them as a small corsage or nosegay, binding their stems to fit them for wearing and to exclude the air that would otherwise dry or wilt them too quickly. For technique, See article on corsage making in the January 1947 Home Garden. The flowers on the gift package we show here on page 67 may have been arranged in a small plastic basket which holds damp moss, damp cotton would do, to keep their stems moist and fresh. The basket itself is wired to the ribbon bow that ties the package. It takes only a few moments to add these flower touches to a gift, time that is out of all proportion to the added pleasure its festive appearance will give and the special thoughtfulness it represents. Page 70. The Question Box. Conducted by Montauk Free. Queries of general interest will be answered here. Others by mail if return postage is enclosed. Strawberry Plants In about two weeks, I am going to set out some of 50 strawberry plants. The ground was plowed last spring and has since been worked over several times. It is a gravely loom-type soil. Would you advertise using a commercial fertilizer when I set out the plants? Or should I set them in peat moss? Sincerely, Ohio. Dear Ohio, Fertilizer could be scattered along the rows at the rate of 2 pounds per 100 square feet, spreading it over a wide foot strip. 
A big handful of wet peat moss worked into the soil around each plant would be helpful. Raspberry Canes Please tell me what is making the bearing canes of my raspberry bushes die. The bushes seem healthy, and in spite of the drought, are bearing nearly as well as they did last year. I keep them mulched and do not spray, and I have had no trouble until these canes began to die. Sincerely, Vermont. Dear Vermont, Unless your canes die before bearing fruit, there is nothing to worry about. It is natural for them gradually to die when the first fruit is ripened. Non-Blooming Dogwood I have a pink dogwood, about eight years old, in a very healthy condition, and about seven feet tall. It is never flowered, and I'm beginning to wonder if there's something I can do to hurry it along. Sincerely, Pennsylvania. Dear Pennsylvania, First of all, be patient. As long as your dogwood is healthy, it should bloom in time. You might try digging a circular ditch, two feet wide and 18 inches deep, around the tree, but several feet away from the trunk. Mix superphosphite, four ounces for each two feet of the trunk, with the dug-up soil, and then return it to the ditch. Page 85, The Gardener's Kitchen, by Ruth Matson. Nature did well to give us peaches for the still, hot days of August. Merely to think of biting into a peach is to feel the refreshment of cool juiciness on the tongue. A bowl of fresh-cut peaches, with the pot of thick cream beside it, seems to promise an evening breeze. Peaches are indeed the boon to the home gardener's table. Peeled and halved and chilled, be sure to dip them in lemon juice and water, half and half, to keep them from blackening. Peaches lend themselves to an imaginative variation. Dab a spoonful of currant jelly in the center of one, add a topping of whipped sweet cream or thick sour cream, and you have a quick, dressy dessert. Chill them for a few hours in a sauce of brandy and honey, one-fourth cup of brandy mixed with a tablespoon of strained honey. Sprinkle on a few raspberries before you serve them for a connoisseur touch. Raw peaches, well-ripened, combined well with figs cooked in syrup. Have you ever tried broiling peaches? Peel and half them and lay them cut side up in a shallow pan. Dot with butter, sprinkle with brown sugar, then broil them slowly until the sugar melts and crusts. You can even bring them to the table flaming by pouring on warmed kirsch when you take the pan from the oven, touching a match to it at once. Brandy or kirsch, with their edge of sharpness, go better with peaches than do the more commonly used sherry, which for my taste are too cloying. Try brandy wine baked peaches for an example of perfect blending of flavors. Recipe upon request. To get back to old favorites, 
What about a peach cream pie as recipe of the month? This delectable dessert is no ordinary pie, and it has the added virtue of being easy to prepare. It should be made well ahead of time and served just barely warm. You'll need pastry for a 9-inch pie tin, 5 or 6 ripe peaches, 3 fourth cup of granulated sugar, 3 rounded tablespoons flour, 2 third cup of heavy cream, 3 drops of almond essence, optional. Line a pie tin with pastry rolled thin. Lap it over double around the edges and mark it with the back of a fork. Now pack the pastry shell with halves of peaches, cut side up. Mix sugar and flour, adding just a dash of salt, then blend in the cream. Add almond essence if you wish. Bake the pie for 45 minutes in a 425 degree oven. The cream will thicken to a rich smoothness as the pie bakes and will solidify a little more as it cools. Time required, one hour plus. Quantity produced, six servings. It's really gilding the lily, but crushed macaroons or ground almonds toasted to a light brown may be spread on the pie before serving to simulate a top crust. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. Bye now.